Good morning. How are we all doing today? Good. You can um, feel free to interact and talk with me while we're going. Um, just so you know, at, at, at Real Life, when I teach there, I'm sorry, I'm not used to this mic, but we'll, we'll be fine with it. Um, at, when I teach there, we do more of an interactive kind of dialogical type teaching, so you won't distract me if you say something or have a question. I may not call on you, but you won't distract me, just so you know. Um, I understand that you guys have been going through a series until Advent, you, you stopped for Advent, but you were going through a series on being the church and that the church isn't just a place that you go to, but is actually the people that make up the church. Is that, is that correct? Am I tracking with you? So I, I, um, I'm excited for you because that's awesome. That's actually something that even in my own home, we've been working a lot to try and change the language with our kids. We, we've been blessed with four children. My wife, Jill, is here over here. Yeah, put her on the spot. Um, and we, uh, even on Sunday mornings, we don't go to church. We, we are the church. We go to a worship gathering of the people that make up the church. But even that is hard, and they catch me in that, too, because it's such habit to say, oh, we're going to church today. And they no, Daddy, you are the church. You know, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. So as a part of that, one of the things that I didn't see in the list of what you're going to be covering is something that, that I want to help you with. Um, if Hopefully, as the Spirit works, it'll be helpful to you. And that is the church as sufferers. Doesn't bring in a lot of people when you bring that, you put that up on the front out there on Welsh Road. The church as suffers, and people are like, no thanks, I'll stay home this Sunday. But the idea is, we at Real Life, we are finishing up a series on 1 Peter, and it's all about suffering, and it has been such an amazing um, time for us as a family there. Last year, we, 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 were, we started this series, and God has been so gracious to not only teach us through it, but in our lives. We've seen great suffering in, in that body. And you can pray for us because we, we've seen some incredible things. But what we've learned is that suffering is good. And we can say that um, because of what God has shown us and what he's taken us through. One of my closest friends, he and his wife, they had a, their first child, and it only, he only lived for an hour. That happened just this last year, towards the end of the year. And they suffered. They are suffering. But it's good. And they would say that to you. If he were here today, if, if they were both here today, they would tell you that because of how the gospel has been displayed through that and what God has done in their lives through that. And when you are on mission, when you are living out this life, the life of the believer, of the follower of Christ, involves suffering. So my prayer for you, for this family here, is that you would be prepared for it. And that's what I'm offering to you today is a little bit of what God has shown us through 1 Peter. And we're going to work through the passage that was read, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. And one of the reasons I want to do this is because in my life, I've never heard anyone say that the deepest and rarest and greatest joys, most satisfying joys of my life have happened, have come in times of extended ease and earthly comfort. I've never heard anyone say that. Because it's not true. That's not what people say. What is true is what Samuel Rutherford said, an old Puritan. He said that when you're in the, in the cellars of affliction, that's where the great king keeps his wine. That it's not out in the courtyard, in the sunshine, that the good stuff happens. It's down in the depths of sorrow. What's true is what Charles Spurgeon said, that they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. 
So we look in this passage in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and as you, if you work through 1 Peter, you see that it's a lot about suffering. And Peter is saying some of the similar things that he said earlier in there. And I just want to give you a quick overview of some of that. So if you flip back a page or two, depending on your uh, translation, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and you look at, let's read from verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then go to our passage in chapter 4, in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's the similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in chapter 4. Peter is telling us, he, he, he bookends almost this book, this letter, with the, the idea of suffering. And he's saying the same thing, that suffering is for the glory of God. And that through suffering, it's not just that it leads to God's glory, but God is glorified in suffering. And that you are made better through suffering. So it's not only the end result, if I just gave you a synopsis of what we've learned there, it's not only the end result of suffering that's good, because on that day when Christ returns and his glory is revealed and we will join him in glory, that is, that is a good thing, yes? Amen? Amen? We're awake, right? Good, okay, good. That is a good thing. That is a glorious thing. But it's true that even in the depths of the suffering, you are being made more like Christ. And that is a good thing. And it's painful and it hurts and it's hard. But if you're going to live this life as a Christian, if you're going to engage the world with, with the gospel, you're going to suffer. And that has to be good news to you, even though it's painful. It has to be. And that's what, that's what this is about. So let's look a little bit about what, how Peter shows us that you don't just survive suffering, but you actually grow in suffering. What are some of the things that... He says that we should do, how should we respond in the face of suffering in this passage? Now, normally, we would shout out our answers at real life. That's what we would do. But I, don't, I know this is new, so I'm not expecting you to do that, okay? I don't, I don't want to throw a curveball. You might not be awake yet and all that. So I'm going to just walk through some of the things. One of the things he says is, don't be surprised. Do you see that? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. He says, rejoice and be glad, which is just crazy, right? Suffering comes, and amen, this is great. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, that's what he says we should do. It's for God's glory. And he says, consider yourself blessed. Do you see that in verse 14? You're blessed when suffering comes. That's a hard one to respond that way. And he says in verse 19 something really interesting. He says, entrust, entrust yourself to God, the creator, he says, and then do what is right or do good in verse 19. So the, the, the response that we're supposed to have is not to be surprised, to rejoice and be glad, to count ourselves blessed, to share in Christ's sufferings, and to do good. So how do we actually respond, though? Not how should we, but how do we actually respond? Anyone want to throw an answer? Or you want me? Yes, Jill. We complain. Yes. We say things like, why me? 
Why me? And you know what that is? That's actually a form of surprise. Why me? Why'd you choose me? Why, why is this happening to me? Or, or we have, instead of um, why me, we say, oh, it's up to me. I've got to change this. I've got to work harder, right? Some of us just, just, just bear down and work harder and don't complain. We just kind of push forward and keep going. And that is a, a lack of trust in God, shows that you're trusting in yourself to do things in your work rather than in God to do these wor- the work or that this is actually a good thing for you. Any other ways that we might respond? Any other ideas? I know this is so foreign to you guys. I'm so sorry. Put you on the spot. But can we have fun with it? Would that be cool? All right, good. Yeah. We shut down. Shut down in in what way? Like we um, just emotionally and just kind of stop everything or? Yeah, okay. We lose hope. That Yeah, we just get quiet. We lose hope. We think, well, there's no hope here because this must have surprised God because it's shocking to me, right, that this trial has come in. So we lose hope. Or we blame others. Do you remember back in the garden? Can you hear me? I know I'm moving around. Is that okay back there? Okay, good. Sorry. Um, Do you remember back in the garden after sin, the fall of man, and God's coming, and and Adam and Eve are, like, hiding from him? That's working so well, right? And he's he's like, where are you? Kind of playing the game with him. But when when he says, what happened? And, And Adam says, it was the woman. It was the woman that you gave me that did this. And he's, he's actually not even blaming the woman. It's such a typical dude, isn't it? He's, not, he's actually not, doesn't have the guts to say to God, it's your fault. So he kind of wraps around it and kind of acts like he's blaming the woman when he's actually blaming God. And that's how guys are some, some time. We don't, we're not totally direct. We just kind of skirt around the issue and say, and they blame others. That's how one of the ways we respond when trials come. And, and Peter wants us to understand that when we respond in all these ways, he knows it, doesn't he? I mean, look at his life, right? He denied Christ when Jesus told him he was going to, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he did. And then he was restored. Because when, when things happen and we don't believe God, we don't trust God, we think God isn't in this, and he's just not aware of it. Right? We, we question whether God is really that great, that he can be aware of everything. Or we question whether if God is good, because why is he allowing this to happen? He must not be good. Or that, that God isn't really in control or something like this, and we're doubting these things. And what Peter wants us to rem- remember and what he wants us to be taught is simply this. This is how you should respond. Summarized everything, and you could go if you want, is this. You need to trust and obey so that you'll trust and obey so that you'll trust and obey so that you'll trust and obey. You get where I'm going with that? That that God brings things into our lives to help us to trust him so that we would obey him so that we would grow in our ability to have faith in him and trust in him so that we would obey. And you can try to manufacture that. You can try to just say, okay, he's bringing this in, and I'm just going to obey. I'm going to look at my Bible, and that's good, and I'm going to learn all these things, and I'm just going to obey everything, and I'm just going to work harder at obeying him. That won't work. It's a good, a good intent, but it's not what God is saying to do. See, something has to happen. God has to intervene for us to be able to trust and obey. 
Uh, the, the, the book of, of Peter, every book in the Bible, every, every passage just looks like a bunch of rules, doesn't it? If you don't have the Spirit working in you to reveal Christ, to see the gospel. Because then you can see that it's not just a matter of trusting and obeying and following rules in this like legalistic way. It's that God has already done the work. Amen. God has done the work. He sent his Son He sent his son to be born as a child to live a perfect, sinless life in which he obeyed every rule perfectly. He didn't come to end the law, but to fulfill it. And he did it perfectly. And then he went to the cross and he took on our sin and our inability to obey the law and to trust in God. He trusted God perfectly, even unto death. Going to the cross, taking our sin, dying for us and being resurrected, brought back to life three days later, a new life, showing that he not only obeyed his father perfectly, but that his father was pleased with what he did, and that we who by faith believe in the work of Christ are free to have his righteousness. So now you don't have to obey perfectly because you've already obeyed perfectly through Christ. That is cool. We should be dancing more often in these services. Man, that is great news. I'm a little bit excited. How about you? That's good news. That's why they call it good news, gospel, that what Christ did was take our sin, give us his righteousness. And when you see these things and when trials come and you think, I can't handle this, you're getting it. You get it. I can't handle, you're right. You can't handle this. I can't handle not being able to make the payment. I can't on the whatever. I can't handle when my kids are so disobedient that it just drives me crazy and I want to do something really bad to them. You're right. You can't handle it. But Jesus can, and he did, and he does one other thing. He does lots of things, but here's one other that I want to tell you. After he gives you his righteousness, he's ascended into heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. And that is the actual power. You get the power to obey, to trust and obey through the Holy Spirit living in you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. And that's where we sit looking at this passage. I don't know what your relationship is with God through Christ if you're just kind of looking into this and and seeking it out or if this is something that you've been committed to for a long time. I don't know. But I want you to know this, without the Spirit of God working in your life, nothing is going to seem like grace. It's just going to seem like rules and law. It's going to be painful. And that, even that, is God's mercy to break you of your rule keeping so that you can accept grace. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at just two things. We're not going to walk through this whole passage because I didn't pack a lunch and we would be here for a long time. So what we're going to do is I want to show you just two things in here. The first thing, if you're a note, note keeper, I'll, I'll give you this. I'm, I'm not much of one, but I did this for you. So uh, what, what the nature of troubles and sorrow, trials, grief, however you want to say it, what the nature of suffering really is. What is their actual nature? What are they? Okay, that's the first thing. And the other thing is, what do these trials do for us? So what's their nature, and what do they do for us? So what are troubles? What's their nature? Because understanding what they really are is more than half the battle. You know, we say a lot at Real Life, I I don't know if you say it here, we, we talk a lot about that 
right theology, a right understanding of God leads to doxology, worship, but it also leads to biography, your life, your story, your life story. If you understand that your story is just a part of God's story and he's telling his story through your story to people around you, then you have a, it, when you have that understanding of God, it affects the way you live your life, doesn't it? If you don't think of yourself as part of God's story, you're going to live a little different differently than those who do see them as just being tellers of God's story with their lives, because their lives are not their own. So understanding what these sufferings are helps you to understand how you should live. And we have to have a good theology of suffering. That's what I'm really just getting at, okay? A good theology of suffering. What does Peter say that trials and suffering are? He says that they're fire. Do you see that? He says, the fiery trial. Don't be surprised about the fiery trial, right in, in verse 12 there. And this word for fiery trial is, in Greek, is porosis. And, it, and you might be able to hear the word purify in there, the root of the word purify. That a fiery trial is there to purify you, to cleanse you, to clean you of your impurities, and to make you more like Christ. Now, I grew up in California, and I only preface that because the story I'm about to tell you, you expect here in the Northeast from people who live in California. That said, we can go on. So I have a friend who, when I was out there, um, who said, you know, all these people are talking to me about getting colonics. You know what a colonic is? Okay, I'm, I'm not going to, there's not an overhead for that, right, Sibby? We don't have that good. Um, but they say they get these, these cleanses, or they do a cleanse diet, a fasting diet, or, or they get a colonic, and they feel great. That's what they're telling Oh, my skin is just glowing, and I'm thinking, why do you want your skin to glow? What, what, I don't get this. And he's telling me all this, and he's like, I'm going to do it. It's like, really? Okay. So he goes, and he de does it, and I see him a couple days later, and I said, so, man, how was that colonic? And he's like, Oh, dude, it was, it was rough. They took the thing and the, oh, man, it's painful. It, it hurt. I didn't like it at all. And it's like, oh, your skin's not glowing either, you know. Now, I'm not saying there's any, well, I'm not making a judgment on colonics. I'm just saying that cleansing, the point of this story is cleansing is painful. It's painful. It's not easy to have the impurities moved. If you're offended by that story, let me give you one that won't be offensive. Here it is. Um, this if, if you talk to a silversmith, do you know what a silversmith is? We don't see them around. I didn't see them in Christmas Village downtown or anything. But silversmith, the people that make things out of silver. If you ask a silversmith, how do you know when that silver is done being in the fire? Do you know what they'll say to you? They'll say something like this. When I can see my reflection in the silver, then I know that all the impurities have been burned out of it and it's ready to be pulled out of the fire. And that's exactly what God does with us, with our lives. He says, I will, I will lovingly hold you in the fire until I can see myself in you and in your life. Praise God for that. Because it, in Colossians and in Hebrews, there's this language of that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, that he's the exact imprint of God. If you want to see the Father, you look to Christ. And if you, if you want to be conformed more to the image of the Father, more an image bearer of the Father, which we're called to do, we become more like Jesus. And God, in his mercy and his love, he does that. He brings things into our lives that will make us more like Christ. Because we wouldn't choose that route. We'd choose the ease and comfort, moving and drifting away from being image bearers. 
but God, because he loves us, holds us to the flames so that we will join Christ in his suffering. What, what was Christ as an image bearer? What did he do? He was on mission. He went and, and he ate with sinners. He engaged people that everyone else thought, you're out of your mind. If you're supposed to be some prophet or teacher, what are you doing? You can't do that. Even so much that they hated him and they killed him. He suffered. And to be like Christ means that you engage in the mission, you join him in his suffering so that you would be a part of his glories. I'm not saying go out there and do stupid stuff just to try and, be, and suffer. If God's called you to do crazy things to suffer, and I know some people that are missionaries in other countries, and they do what I think is some crazy stuff, and all glory to God, it's awesome what they do. But I'm not saying being foolish to engage suffering. I'm saying your life will bring suffering, whether you want it or not. Rejoice because you're being conformed into the image of Christ. That's what God's doing. He wants to make us so like Christ that this body here, that Seven Mile Road, would be a bunch of little Jesuses in all their neighborhoods. In your communities, that when people rub shoulders with you, they're touching God, in a sense. They're coming closer to an image of God, that you would so fill these neighborhoods around here, wherever you come from, King of Prussia, downtown, Delaware County, Montgomery County, Bucks County, Philadelphia, that there would be little Jesuses, missionaries for Christ, sharing the gospel, not just with our words, but with our actual lives, because they would, we would be reflections because of how we deal with suffering, how we think about everything. That's what God's doing. And if, you, if your response is always to buck against that, reject or to turn away from it, you're not being conformed. And he will continue to bring the heat because he loves you. It'll get harder and harder. That's, that's the encouraging word for today, okay? I don't wish that upon you. But he wants us to do that. In Genesis, when, when God says, um, be fruitful and multiply, he's not just talking about having children. He's saying, make disciples. He's saying, make disciples. Be fruitful. Fill the world with disciples of Christ who are being discipled by Christ and discipling others to Christ. Because in that, you see a fuller picture of the gospel. You see, in, in our community, when I, if I just go and meet people in my neighborhood and I do this and I, and I talk to them and I just started just sharing the gospel in my life with them and it was just all about me and them and talking about Jesus, I might make a disciple of Gino. I might. But if I do it the way that I think God has, has called us to do it with my missional community, with a group of people, and they meet my wife and my kids and my other friends from real life and people that might, might not even be members of, at real life but are just kind of in our community, they see a fuller-orbed picture of the gospel. Do you see that? That's, that's the idea of filling the world with disciples so that you show each one of them as an image bearer of God shows a picture of Christ. And the bigger the party, the greater the image. So when you're out on mission, it's not just you and Jesus. It's you and your community displaying the gospel with how you relate to each other, how you suffer for other people and with them, showing the gospel in that way and proclaiming the gospel, of course. But the, the more people that do that on mission together, the, the better the expression or the more of God's image is being displayed. And I think that's as you're being reminded or learning for the first time about being the church, know that that's part of being on mission. Engage people in your workplace and do it even more so in community with your family here. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. 
So I said the first thing we would talk about is what, what troubles are and what, they, what these sufferings and trials are, and they're heat, they're fire, and they're there to purify you. And then the other thing that we want to see is what do these trials do for us? Well, they do three things for us. Suffering shows you what you really trust in. Suffering shows you the inadequacy of your trust. And suffering teaches you to trust in God. See, we all, we all say it shows, okay, the first thing is what, we, what you really trust in. It shows you what you really trust in. We all will say, I trust in God. I love God. I trust in him. And that is good. But the truth is, you don't know if you trust in God until you're in the fire. You won't know for sure. Because there are competing allegiances that you might have to different things, to things that might be good, but you've made them your idols. And you won't know about some of those until you're in the fire. A trial is when there's a separation between your allegiance to God and something else. When that is being called to be torn apart. When there's a fork in the road. And you can't find out, you can't purify silver unless it's in the heat. And you can't find out what your faith really is unless it's tested in the fire. When things are going really good, when you feel like everything's going swell and the sun is shining, the birds are singing and the fillies are winning and everything's good, then you, you can have competing allegiances, competing trusts, and you won't even know it. But then something happens in your workplace or at home or somewhere in your heart and you find out, wow, I was really trusting in that. You say, I trust in God until blank, fill in the blank, is threatened. So, for example, your, your job, okay? You can have your job, and it can, it can cause you, you can have this fire happen, the trial happens, when obeying your boss might cause you to disobey God. You're asked to lie or cheat or do something unethical in your workplace. This has happened to me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, and it's caused me to lose a job before because I refused to do it. Don't pat me on the back. No, that was God working in that area, because left to my own, I would have taken the money and stayed there, honestly. That's, that's horrible, but that's the truth. So you have this time where you find out that, hey, I can't do this. I just can't do this. And you find out, hey, my allegiance is towards God. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm ready to sacrifice my career because I want to honor God. But those are hard things, and you won't know that your career is that important to you, that you make it an ultimate thing until it's, it's um, questioned or it's pulled into the fire, and you might lose it. Do you follow that? Or the opposite sort of thing could happen where sometimes you lose your job and you stop trusting God. God's not good because he took away my job. If God was good, he'd give me work. And you start questioning God's goodness and your trust in him because your ultimate, your ultimate thing was your job. So that's when you're in the fire is when these two competing allegiances are pulled apart and you have to choose one of these roads. And these, this can happen in relationships. It can happen in your workplace. happens in so many things. It can happen when you're on mission. When you are living the life of a follower of Christ as a believer and situations come where maybe your neighbor needs just basic things like they have a financial issue and they don't have any money to buy food and you are pulled into question, in a sense, because you can serve them and display the gospel in a tangible way by providing that for them as a community, or you can say, I really want that extra cup of coffee this week, so I'm not going to do that. 
Well, that's, that's just a practical thing, and it might seem simplistic, but if you really look into your heart, you know that those things are happening, that God's always giving you opportunities to, to say, are you going to display the gospel with your life, with your finances, with your choices, with your relationship, or are you going to just say, I want this more than I want God? And he, he calls us to die, to die. I don't want to scare you away from this. I just want to be a brother and a friend who's telling you what Scripture says, that the life of a Christian is, is a call to death. If your life on mission doesn't feel painful sometimes, you're not living it. And that is not to be discouraging because he says to die to self so that you would live for and with Christ. You lose this life for the sake of resurrection life. Nothing else offers that. Nothing else. That is good news. That is great. That empowers you to sacrifice greatly because of what you are, because of Christ. Do you see that? Do you see what he's saying? So mission is painful. Being the church sometimes is painful because there's greater glory in the pain and in the end result of going through the pain. So I would ask you to consider, as we're not too far into this new year, how are you going to reorientate your life for mission? What is God calling you to give up or to change so that you can be on mission? Is it the way that you spend your quiet time? Maybe you spend too much time in the books studying one-on-one. -on -one. That's a good thing. But is, are you never going out and meeting people in your neighborhood? We eat 21 meals a week, roughly. Could you do a couple of those with your neighbors or someone who doesn't know Jesus? Eating is a great way to just display God's love. We, he reminds us three times a day, roughly, maybe more if you're me, I, I like to eat a little more, that, that we need him. We need him to provide food. And we can give him thanks for his provision of that food because it reminds us of the greatest provision he's offered us in Christ Jesus, the, the reconciliation with the Father. And we can dine with sinners just like Jesus. And we can share that. And we can tell them that. And they like that. It's okay. Don't be afraid. But how are you going to do that? What, how are you going to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? I'm not asking you to lose your life literally. I'm saying maybe some things need to change. And that's something you need to pray about. I hope you'll consider that. Because these trials, they cost you something. They're going to cost you either the things that you love or they're going to cost you your faith with God, you know, your relationship with God. You're going to see that that's not exactly where it needs to be. You know that you're in the fire. You'll know you're in the fire when you hear things like this from God, when you hear God whisper in your ear, am I here to serve you or are you here to serve me? Am I your assistant or are you my assistant? Am I the means to some other end or am I the end of all your means? God is saying, what do you desire and love most? Is it me or is it something else? What are you willing to sacrifice if I call you to it? The two ways can no longer exist, and you'll find out what you really, really have your allegiance to. And sometimes you'll find it's not God. You'll find that you love your job. You love your spouse, your child more than God. And God gives you the opportunity to remove yourself from that allegiance. Now, hear me rightly. I'm not saying you shirk your responsibilities as an employee, a husband, or a wife, or a parent. I'm saying that God in his mercy says, do you see that this has become the ultimate thing for you and not me? And that is sin. That's, that's an idol. And you need to put me first. 
because these other things won't stand up in the fire. And that's the second thing that these, these trials show us. I said the first one was they show us, um, these trials will show us what we, what we have our allegiances in. And then the second thing is they show us the inadequacy of your, of your trust. In Jeremiah 2, 27 and 28, God is speaking, speaking and he says, They say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. But they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. God is saying that when the trouble comes, you look for me. But all the other time, you're making idols out of wood and stone. And we're doing that with our lives. How do you know what your trust really is? You see, here's God, and here's comfort. Here's God, and here's body image. Here's God, and here's um, sexual satisfaction. Here's God, and here is social acceptance. What are you really trusting in? When you're tempted, you might say, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I have to go to status because I can't live a life of people always making fun of me. I just can't do it. Or I got to go to pleasure because I don't want to live a life of constantly denying myself of anything pleasurable. Do you see what you're saying, what we say with that? We're saying, I'd like to have God, but I have to have this. And that is your God. That is your God. The non-negotiables become your God. And how do you know that those trusts, those things you trust in, are accurate, that they're true, that they're reality? Well, Jeremiah says it's not on vacation that you find out that your gods won't stand up to the heat. It's in the fire. Do you see that? In the fire, all the other trusts are incinerated. They won't stand up to reality. They don't take real life. They can't hold up to it. So you say... Maybe this is a situation for you. This is something we, we have go on at, at real life. Um, I want to be a Christian. People say this. I want to be a Christian, but I'm single, and I don't want to cut myself off. You know, and I know that the Bible says that I'm only supposed to marry another Christian if I become a Christian, and I look around the room, and I go, whoa, slim pickings here. And then I think, uh, look at the city of Philadelphia. I mean, how many Christians are there there? And wow, I think I've just committed social suicide. And you think, oh my gosh, this is hard. And it is hard. Oh, this is the fire I'm suffering. No, you're not. You're not suffering. That's not, that's not suffering. Here's, here's suffering. You meet someone who you're really attracted to, not just physically, but emotionally and all these things. And you have shared values. And this person says to you as it gets serious, you know, I could never, no, never, never, ever, ever will I become a Christian. Follow Christ. Welcome to the fire. That's the fire. Because now God's saying, what do you value most? That relationship or our relationship? You're being tested. And I ask you, how will that stand up in the heat of life? If the, the uh, affections of another person are what you desire, how do those affections hold up to being sick in bed? You can be loved, but if it's just this physical attraction, how does that 
hold up to old age, gray hair, sagging, and just wrinkles and all that stuff. And I'm getting really depressed just talking about it, but that's real life. Where are those allegiances? How do those trusts hold up in that kind of fire? What do they do? They are incinerated. You see, I hear people say a lot as a pastor, and you probably have said this because I have myself at some point, or you hear someone say this to you, my life is meaningless. There's no hope. I have no joy in my life because I just do the same things every day and nothing brings me joy. And you know what you're saying? You know what the truth is? Your life is meaningless because the things you found meaning don't handle the heat of life. They're incinerated. Those trusts leave you because they're burned up. You will not always be as physically attractive as you were or are now. You will not always be as healthy as you were or are now. And when those days come, what is going to hold up? See, if life has its meaning in what you think about yourself or what other people think about you and not in God, you're going to lose and you're going to be depressed at some point. If you think about yourself enough, you'll become depressed. You could try it, but I wouldn't encourage you. When your trust is in something other than God, it will leave you. And God, in his love, is bringing things into our life to remind us that those things won't hold up and that putting your trust in him is the only thing that will last, the only thing that can take the heat. In 1555, there were a lot of Christians being martyred in in England. And there's lots of stories about him. I want to tell you one quick one about John Bradford. He was tried and condemned for his, his faith, and he was going to be burned at the stake with another man, John Lease. He was tied. They were tied, bound, uh, I guess, at the waist to the stake. And before he, they, they set him on fire, he turned to the crowd, and he, offered, he asked them for forgiveness for any wrongs that he had committed against them, and he asked for their forgiveness for any wrongs that he had committed. So he, he was reconciled to the people. And then he looked and saw that John Lease was pretty nervous, as you might be. And he said to him, he turned to him and he said, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. And they raised their hands into the air and they praised, prayed to God, praising him for their lives as the fire consumed them. What will your allegiances do in the face of that kind of reality in death? Where will they be to save you? How will you, you're not, not all of us are going to be called to die for our faith, but we all will die. And what will our faith be in? God is showing you that the other trust can't stand the heat of life. And that's why he brings heat to burn up the impurities so that you would be more like Christ. And the fiery trials will prove whether you have faith or your faith needs to be redirected into him. And that's mercy. You see, when you discover that it's not in him, when your faith isn't in him, God gives you this chance to turn, to repent, and turn towards him. We say, you know, God, purify my heart so that I would do your work. We pray things like that, right? And then he brings heat, and we say, well, not like that. I mean, come on, Lord, what are you doing? In trouble... You have to see mercy. It's God's mercy. Now, if, if you haven't raised kids, then I can give you a little bit of a break here. If you haven't raised kids, because maybe you haven't seen this practically played out. 
Um, and you're just going to have to trust in what the Bible says. And the Bible says that basically that if you want to become a better person or grow into a good person, you have to constantly have things brought into your life that you wouldn't choose. That's how it works. Things that seem like they don't belong and that you don't want. want. And that doesn't seem to make sense to you, but they come into your life. And that's how this happens, how this growth happens. But if you're a parent, you know that there is absolutely no way to turn a child into a mature adult without them constantly accusing you of cruelty. (laughs) It's true. Because they're like, how can you do that to me? Don't you love me? Why, Why would you make me not do that? I mean, why can't I do that? Or all these things. And we see this. So for, for us parents, there's no excuse. We've seen this played out, and that's what God is doing with these trials. How are we doing on time? I'm, I'm not sure how. We're good? Okay. I'm almost done. The final point. This teaches us to trust in God. So the trials show us what we really trust in. They show us that our trusts don't hold up to the flames. And then it teaches us to trust in God. And there's just three things that I want to say. One is don't be surprised. We said that in the beginning. I talked a little bit about it. Peter reminds us, don't be surprised. And that's actually a command. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials when they come. See, surprise will sink you, not grief. It's surprise that will just throw you into depression, not grief. Jesus grieved. He grieved. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, he was weeping and sweating blood. He was asking, if there's another way, Lord, let's do that. Me not going to the cross would be A-OK with me, Father, right now. But if that is your will, your will be done. He trusts and obeys. But he wasn't surprised because he knew there was a plan And in your life, when things happen, when stuff that seems bad and is bad and is painful, don't be surprised. Rejoice, it says. Not as a masochist. I love the pain. Hit me again. That's not what you're saying. But because you're walking in the actual steps of Christ as you suffer, he suffered, and so do you. You're part of the family. So grieve, but don't be surprised. And the second thing that Peter says here that how we, we need to um, trust in God is to obey. When trouble comes, it's easy to stop praying, isn't it? It's easy to stop showing up on Sundays when, when things are hard. I'm just not going to go gather with the family. It's easy to not go to your soul care groups. It's easy to just stop serving people, to think, go inward, and self-pity, get off mission, and com- start committing what I would call escape sins. Those silly little things that you do that you wouldn't normally do, but they just feel good temporarily, so you do them because you're depressed. When a surgeon is working on a patient, you need to sit still. You're moving around, they're not trying to hurt you with the, with the scalpel. They're doing good for you. But if you're wriggling, wriggling around like a little kid, it's pretty hard to do their job. Obedience is what you need to do. You need to sit still. Continue to do the things that you're supposed to do, even though you might not feel like it. That's obedience. Sometimes you do that just because God is God, not because you find joy in them. You will find joy in them through obedience. Charles Spurgeon said, An ounce of sin will hurt you far more than 10 million tons of suffering. An ounce of sin 
will hurt you far more than 10 million tons of suffering. What he's saying is that your sin is more damaging than any suffering God allows into your life. My yelling at my wife harms me far more than anything God's ever done because it hardens my heart. So obey, even in the suffering, look to God and obey him. So don't be surprised. Obey him. And the third thing is entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. Trust God. And you might ask, well, why? Why can I trust God? Because Jesus knows what it's like. He's been through all the sufferings that you will experience. He can relate to it. No other religion philosophy, thought process, has a savior who died for you. Doesn't exist. He knows. He's intimately familiar with your suffering. If you say, I've been hurt, he's been brutally beaten. You say, I've been abandoned, and he says, my friends left me in my hour of need. I felt alone, Jesus. I've been, I'm so lonely, He was completely alone, more so than any of us. He was separated from his father so that we would be brought in, so that we'll never, ever be alone. He experienced loneliness to the uttermost. And when the fire comes, when your life is full of suffering, you can look to God and you can say, God, this is so hard. And you know what he can say? I know. That's awesome. That's comforting. That's a father who loves you and wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ through suffering. The suffering, this purification is mercy. As you move out as a community on mission, look for people's suffering and see how you might be able to bear that for them. Because as believers, we bear suffering with joy for our good. When you don't know Christ, suffering is really devastating because it ends in death. There's no hope in it. That's how you can be missional. That's how you can be the church. That's one way. So I want to encourage you to encounter suffering with joy for, the, for your own good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so grateful for your son. We thank you that he, as a missionary, came to this world and displayed what it is like to engage people for your glory and for your name. Lord, that he was not afraid to seek out the lost like us, but that he did it with joy for their good. Lord, help us to not just follow in the pattern of his life, but in the pattern of his death, that we would endure suffering with hope because you have provided hope. You have given us hope because of what Christ has done and who he has made us. Lord, thank you for doing that. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Seven Mile Road that they would be a group of believers filled with hope because they understand the gospel intellectually, but because they believe the gospel in their heart and who they are because of that and that they live lives that display not only what they know and what they believe, but with what they do, that they show your gospel to the people around them, to their coworkers, their friends, their family members, and that people would see them and see something different about them, that they would say, I don't know what it is, but there's something about them that shows me that they love me, 
Lord, and that you would be quick to be praised for that, that you would be honored and glorified through their lives, Lord. Do that work as only you can do because of your son and what he has done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.